Well, if you have a Bible there with you, or if you want to turn to the uh, scripture printed out in the insert in your bulletin, our sermon text this morning is a very short one. You'll barely have time to stand up, but I'll ask you to do it anyway, if you're able to do so. Uh, out of respect for the reading of God's word, not out of respect for me, but uh, our sermon text is Habakkuk. have kind of a hard time finding that one if you're not used to looking for that one. But Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2, verse 4, uh, give ear to the word of God. The prophet writes, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. The sense of reading of God's word, you may be seated. Well, as you've already heard a few times today, uh, but I'll mention it again, today is obviously Reformation Sunday, uh, and that is the Sunday that uh, is observed either the Sunday before or on October 31st. And if you aren't aware of, of that date and why that date, besides candy and, and dressing up in costumes, is so important, um, it's because on that date in 1517, an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther, who everybody I hope knows, uh, nailed a document to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. Um, that, that was not a, uh, it was not an act of vandalism. Uh, he wasn't trying to deface the church door. Uh, that was kind of the first set, the 16th century version of putting up a public notice that involved the church. And what Luther was trying to do, if you aren't aware of it, uh, he was really trying to, to start a debate of sorts. It's really all he was looking to do. He wanted to start a conversation and if you know your history, you'll know that the Roman Catholic Church was very much not interested in having that conversation, uh, but in the providence of God, God had, in his providence, made it so that the Gutenberg Press had been invented and came about, and so this little document that Luther wrote was suddenly spread far and wide and was written uh, and translated into the common tongue, so everybody was reading it, and everybody else started asking the same questions that, that Luther was asking, and that caused quite a bit of controversy for the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and uh, he just wanted a debate, but God used it to do so much more. None of us, humanly speaking, would be sitting here in this church, worshiping the Lord, believing in Christ. I mean, God could have used something else, but he used Luther's work and others to make this uh, come to pass. So... Um, his nailing of those of that document, often referred to as the 95 Theses. Any better? There's a little tenny there. Sorry about that. That document he wrote on there was called the 95 Theses. I don't know. I, I doubt he called it that, but that's what we call it. And really what that is, it was 95 points of argumentation or disputation that he wanted to talk about. You know, you think about, sometimes you think, oh, the three-point sermon's very long, 95 points, you know, uh, <laughs> reminds me of, I shouldn't quote TV shows, but it kind of reminds me a little bit uh, in a humorous way of um, uh, the Seinfeld line when his dad said, i got a problem with you people, and I'm going to let you know about it. He had 95 problems with these people and wanted to talk about it, and uh, anyway, the rest is, is history, but... Um, that it's been credited with uh, that nailing of that document on the church door uh, is widely considered to be the official so-called start of the Protestant Reformation. Not that there weren't things before that that led up to it, but a very important thing. It's kind of the thing that lit the fuse and, and got things going. And so uh, what we're going to look at today in many ways is the central doctrine of the Reformation. We're going to look at justification by faith at least br briefly this morning. In our text today, which uh, we may have trouble spelling the name Habakkuk, if, I, if you don't look, see if you can spell it, you may have trouble finding the book because we're not used to reading it very often. It's not the one that, you, that jumps to mind for most of us, I think, when you're reading 
or looking for something uh, to, to read in the Bible for devotional uh, uses. Uh, this might be considered kind of an obscure passage uh, or obscure book, but this little tiny verse from a little tiny, uh, they call them the minor prophets because they're shorter books, than not because they're unimportant, uh, is quoted. You might know this one verse and tucked away in this little obscure book in the Old Testament is quoted at least three times in the New Testament. It's quoted twice by Paul and once by the writer of Hebrews. We don't know who that, who that writer is. Uh, and so this minor, so-called minor prophet played a major role in the apostolic teaching of the gospel. James Montgomery Boyce writes the following. He says this, our text here, this is a great text. It could even be called the great text of the Bible. To understand it is to understand the Christian gospel and the Christian life. It is so important that it is picked up by the New Testament writers, again, twice by Paul, Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, and once by the author of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 10, verse 38. You might know it was actually Paul's quotation of Habakkuk 2.4 in Romans 1.17 that God used in the conversion of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was studying that book. He was teaching through Romans and all kinds of things. And when he, when he came upon that verse, it apparently got stuck in his head. And when he realized what it actually meant, here's what he writes about, this, about that verse. He says, Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. And I, and I extolled my sweetest words with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the words the righteousness of God. Thus, that place in Paul, Romans 1.17, was for me the very gate of paradise. So you can see what, what, what Luther is getting at. Before his conversion to Christ, before he believed in Christ and understood the truth of the gospel and justification by faith alone, Paul hated those words. To Paul, the, the phrase, the righteousness of God, was like that sort of Damocles hanging over his head. It, the righteousness of God was nothing but judgment and wrath to Luther because Luther knew he was a sinner. Until he understood that verse the way he was supposed to, the way the Bible actually intends it, and realized it was God's righteousness uh, imputed to people, to all who believe on Christ for salvation. It was the righteousness, as, as Rob read in, in Philippians 3.11 or 3.9, uh, he, he phrases it this way, the righteousness that is not just of God, but is what? from God through faith. It's righteousness given by God to all who, who believe. So that little verse not only changed Martin Luther's life and his uh, eternity forever, but it also changed much of world history. Uh, the last 500 years or so are inexplicable apart from the work of Luther in, in the gospel. Some, some have called this verse Habakkuk 2.4 because of this. They've called it the battle cry of the Reformation. Um, well, before we jump right into what the New Testament says about Habakkuk 2.4, which we will do, I thought it would be good for us to spend a little bit of time looking at an overview of Habakkuk and the context of what he is saying here in verse 4 of chapter 2. And so I thought by way of introduction, it might be good to give something of a brief overview uh, of, of this book. Uh, Habakkuk is a short book. It's only three chapters long. You could read it in one sitting very, very easily. It uh, basically consists of the prophet's complaints, if I can use that phrase respectfully, uh, his complaints in prayer to God uh, and God's answers. Habakkuk was a prophet, verse 1 
of chapter 1. He served the Lord in Judah around 600 B.C. So if you know your history, you know that's not long before the Babylonians came on the scene and carried away everybody off into captivity in 586 B.C. And so the first thing that Habakkuk complains in a, in a uh, reverent way to the Lord about was the rampant ungodliness and the wickedness, not of the Chaldeans or Babylonians, but of the people of Judah. In Habakkuk 1, verses 2 to 4, he says the following. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? Thank you. And, and will you not hear or cry to you violence and, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The law, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked Surround the righteous so justice goes forth perverted. You get what he's saying? He's like, basically, if I could paraphrase, I've been praying about these things for a long time. You ever do that and wonder if God is answering and and listening? I've been praying about the state of my country for a while. We've never done that, right? We don't know what that's like. And what was he praying about? Wickedness, violence, unbelief, injustice. Sounds familiar. Not that we could ever possibly identify with that in our country, right? He'd been crying out to God for help, but it seemed to him that wickedness had just been getting worse, uh, even as he, he prayed. And so justice could not be found. He complains to God that God made him to see iniquity. In other words, why do I have to see all this? I don't want to see all this as if God wanted to see it either. Uh, he saw wickedness, iniquity, violence, and no help seemed to be coming. He even... I don't want to say he accused God of this, but in verse 3 he says, uh, you know, it seemed to him, he says, why do you, God, look idly at wrong? It seemed to him as if the judge of all the earth was sitting on his hands and just kind of watching the things happen, you know, kind of dispassionately, as if, as if none of it really, really mattered. And so what does the Lord in, in his kindness answer to his prophet? He, he corrects him, really. He tells him he's in no way idly looking at wrong. In fact, he tells Habakkuk, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing with respect, you know, don't worry, I'm about to do something about it. I've heard your prayers. Uh, they haven't gone unanswered. I'm not sitting by idly watching what people are doing. Uh, he's going to do something about it, and he's going to do something about it that Habakkuk would never believe, that he would be shocked by. Look at verses 5 and 6 of Habakkuk 1. He says, God says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Probably not the answer that Habakkuk was hoping to hear. Um, So God was going to raise up the Babylonians. Last thing Habakkuk was hoping to hear, certainly expected to hear, they were a ruthless and powerful nation. They were probably the most violent and powerful nation in the world at the time. They were bent on world conquest, as they kind of nations are meant to or want to do. They were a pagan, godless people, or I guess you could say not godless. They were without the true God, but they were a pagan people, and their own might, God says, was their God. They, they were their own God in some ways, according to them. And so what happened with that? That brought up a whole new set of questions for the prophet, didn't it? His reaction wasn't, oh, well, why didn't you just say so? That's great. 
he was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not what I was, was thinking of. Habakkuk 1, 12 to 2, 1, he complains to God in prayer respectfully a second time. He recognizes that God had ordained, ordained in his sovereignty the Chaldeans, quote, verse 12, as a judgment. So who were the Babylonians ordained by God for judgment against? The southern kingdom of Judah, the southern tribes of Judah. It says he had established them for reproof against them. In other words, the, the people of, of Judah were sinning greatly against the Lord. And so what did God do to chastise them? A pretty severe chastisement, isn't it? He sent the Babylonians to destroy the place and take everybody off into captivity. And he says it was as a judgment, verse 12, and it was for reproof. Sometimes God's reproofs and chastisements can be very severe upon his, upon his people. And so Habakkuk goes on to say in verse 13 that surely God was of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. And so how could he remain silent, he says, when the wicked, that's Babylon now, swallows up the man more righteous than he. In other words, he was having trouble reconciling in his mind and heart how God could chastise his people, which is one thing, but chastise them through a far more, at least humanly speaking, a far more wicked nation, one that didn't even worship the Lord. They worshiped pagan, pagan idols. And he couldn't understand why God would use the more wicked to punish the what he says, the more righteous, really that they weren't righteous at all. And he couldn't fathom how God could possibly do such a thing. And so in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1, uh, he says he's going to, the prophet says he's going to take his stand at the watch post. He's going to stand his post. He's going to go on guard duty. He says he's going to station himself on the tower to wait and watch for God's answer to that complaint. What's God going to tell him about, about this situation um, you think about this, sometimes the, these things only come, the answers, only come after much persistence in prayer and waiting upon God. You know, the prophet didn't have some kind of special in with God where anything he asked God just jumped right to it and gave him his answer. He had, to per, he had been praying is the implication throughout the text so far, and he's going to keep praying and waiting and watching more, and so he's waiting upon God. Have you ever, have you ever had to pray like that? Have you had a situation or situations in your life, maybe now or maybe in the past, where you've prayed and you've had to keep praying and you've had to keep praying and you had to persevere in prayer and wait upon God and his, and his answer? Has God's providence ever proved so puzzling to you that you had to pray often and wait long and hard for his answer? That's what Habakkuk did. So if that's you, that you're in good, you're in good company. That is what we should do as well. The Bible in many places teaches us to persevere. Jesus taught a parable to teach his people to persevere in prayer. Remember the parable of the persistent widow and the unjust judge? He says he taught this prayer, he, he taught this parable to them to teach his people to persist in prayer. Sometimes God's answer is, is not, not forthcoming, but it's you have to wait. He's not in the same hurry that we often are. And so if your troubles, if your, if your perplexing questions in your life gets you to pray, Ultimately, that is not doing you any harm at all. It's doing you much good. If God uses your trials at least to get you praying, God bless him for that. That is a, a great thing uh, for us in the midst of our trials. Well, here we get the Lord's answer to Habakkuk, which is where we start getting to our sermon text. In verses uh, 2 through 4 of Habakkuk 2, 
God tells us the answer. It says here, Habakkuk says, And the Lord answered me. And here's what he said. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. The arrogant don't do that. The arrogant are puffed up, think they know everything, think they're in control of all things. But he says the righteous, the just person, will live by his faith. So the Lord didn't just give Habakkuk a vision for himself, for his own private edification and encouragement. It was for that, of course, as well. Um, he told him to write it down, to write the vision down. And what was he going to write it down on? Tablets. Now, not the tablets that we think of, paper tablets or, you know, certainly not electronic tablets, probably stone. Writing it down was going to be a little bit of a task, right? Uh, probably wasn't going to be the fanciest uh, cursive uh, letters and things like that. Write it on tablets. Um, so this answer that God was giving him wasn't just for his own benefit. He was to make this known uh, to the people of Judah in his own day, and it's also for us as well. And notice he didn't just say write it down. That would have been enough, right? He said to make it plain on tablets. Why? So he may run who reads it. Now, there's a couple ways you could take that, and they're probably not unrelated, um, I don't know about you. You ever try to read a book while you're on a walk? Probably not, right? Even with the big print and large, you know, good glasses, you're probably not going to have a very good time reading a book on your walk. That's why they make audio books for lazy people like us, right? Uh, he says, write it so that he who runs can read it. So while you're, run, while you're on the run, maybe, from, maybe the picture is running away from the Babylonians. You can read what God is saying. And read it clearly. It would have to be very large print, very large chiseling into a into a tablet. But I think there's another part of this uh, of, of this imagery. I think it's meant to be teaching him that this message was supposed to be promulgated far and wide. That the person running who's reading it is a messenger, not just somebody reading it for himself. You think about you know if you know U.S. history at all, Paul Revere's Midnight Ride, uh, where he yelled. You know, very simple message. The British are coming. The British are coming. The British are coming. Like he, his whole job was just to alarm and alert the people. I think that's what's going on here is the, the reader, the messenger, had to make this uh, message so plain and so clear that the messenger could, could cry it out loud and read it out loud while he's running with that message. Just like to give the message given to Habakkuk, this vision that it had to be made plain. And there's a lesson for us today. The preaching and teaching of God's word, likewise, must be made plain. It must be made clear. Matthew Henry writes of this verse. He says, note those who are employed in preaching the word of God should study plainness as much as may be so as to make themselves intelligible to the simplest capacities. In other words, uh, our job, those of us who have the, uh, the privilege of preaching and teaching God's word, um, our job is not to impress you. It, it's just not. My job, and it, it, would, be, it would take some doing uh, to show you how intelligent I am or whoever, it's not our job to do that at all. If we make things complicated that are simple, we're doing no one any favors. 
we should, just like it says here, write it plainly so those who run can, can read it. There is a need and always has been in our day for, for simple and clear preaching and teaching of God's word because the urgency of the message of the gospel and really all of scripture uh, is so urgent. There are sinners, when it comes to the gospel, there are sinners dying outside of Christ that must be warned of judgment to come, the judgment of a holy God. That judgment is even more fearful than a Babylonian army. You know, it's, it's at times uh, people complain that they'll, they'll read the history of, of, of the world. They'll read the history contained in the, in, the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, and they'll say, oh, how could God allow this awful thing to happen? How could God allow the Babylonians and, and the Assyrians to come in and wipe out the southern and northern kingdoms? Why does God allow all this, this death and calamity um, if, if God is just? And uh, you know, sometimes it occurs to me to say, well, that's nothing. Like, that's nothing compared to the, to the wrath of God after the judgment. And that's his just judgment upon all wickedness and sin. All the wars, the, all the violence we see is, a, is nothing but a drop in the bucket compared to the judgment to come. Second Corinthians 5, 10 to 11, Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And then he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are, what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. You now, Paul very often in his letters to the churches said things like this, said, said things like, I'm not preaching with wisdom. He wasn't preaching to impress anybody. All he knew was Christ crucified, and that's what he preached. He preached Christ crucified crucified his, his death his resurrection for sinners for our salvation Paul kept it as much as possible very very simple uh, in verse 3 the Lord tells Habakkuk of the certainty of the judgment that was coming to pass he said it would pass come to pass at its appointed time and even if it seemed slow he was to wait for it because it wasn't really going to delay God's timing is what it what it is and always is and it, it may seem slow to us but it really isn't you know, God's just judgment often seems slow to scoffers. Think of the Apostle Peter's writings when he said, you know, scoffers will come in the last, last days and scoff and say, where is the promise of his coming? All things have continued as they have from the beginning. In other words, I haven't seen any judgment. And, but what, what does he remind them of? What about the flood? God has done a worldwide judgment before, and it won't be the same kind of judgment. He will do it again at his appointed time. Well, now we come to the heart of the matter uh, look at our text, verse 4 of chapter 2, one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. Habakkuk 2.4, after telling the prophet all these things that I've tried to sum up briefly for us here today, after telling him all that, telling him about the judgment to come against his own people and against the Chaldeans, God tells Habakkuk this, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Here you see two, thing, two ways of life contrasted. You see the way of the proud and, or the wicked, and you see the way of the just or the righteous. Walter Chantry writes this. He says, there are only two kinds of men who have ever lived on the earth. Two kinds of men who have ever, ever lived on the earth, men of pride and men of faith. That's it. You know, when you think of the, of the fall in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve when they took the forbidden fruit, what was the root cause of that? Pride, wasn't it? It was pride and unbelief. It was not trusting. It was thinking that God was holding out on them, and they deserved 
better in some ways. The serpent deceived Eve and they ate. Uh, but being puffed up was their sin at the time. Uh, the proud or the puffed up person here in Habakkuk's day includes not only the wicked in Judah that he originally was talking about in chapter 1, the ones that, that uh, the Habakkuk had, had complained about in his prayer, but also the wicked Chaldeans or Babylonians whom God was raising up to chastise his own people. And so the arrogant also then represents all of those who are not upright in every age, whether Jew or Gentile, those who reject God, reject his word and spurn it, those who think they have no need of God and despise his just judgments. But what about the other way? What about the other, the other group of people, so to speak? What characterizes the way of the righteous? Remember he says, uh, the righteous shall live by faith, but the other one is puffed up. What characterizes the way of the righteous? You might think, our first instinct would be to say, well, obviously, God is going to say there's the wicked and what they are, they're puffed up. And the righteous person, well, they're known by what they do, by their righteous deeds. And there, there's some logic to that. But is that what he says? It's not what he said. It's what you would have expected. You would have expected that to be the, the contrast. But the righteous person is not more righteous than others. That's not what he says. He says the opposite of unbelieving pride is faith. It's faith, the just or the justified person or the righteous person. What characterizes the righteous person, the one who's righteous before God, is that they will live by their faith. That's the distinguishing characteristic, the first and foremost distinguishing characteristic of, of the righteous before God is that they are people who live by their faith. In Habakkuk's situation, in his day, that meant trusting God even in the face of of present or impending evil. It meant trusting that God knows what he's doing. Uh, it meant that he trusted that God works all things, as, as Paul says in Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. It doesn't mean that you and I, with our little pea brains and, and very finite minds, can understand all the intricacies of that will. But it means that we know that God knows what he's doing. And he's working everything out according to the counsel of his, of his will. Romans 8.28 tells us that he makes what? All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He, he can't do that if he's not in charge of all things. If he's not actually making all things work together according to his perfect will. And then lastly, Genesis 18.25. It's, it's written as a question. Shall the judge of the earth not do right? The answer is rhetorical, right? It's of course he will. The judge of all the earth, which is whom? God, even the Lord Jesus Christ, will certainly do what's right. The rest of chapter 2, he assures his prophet that the Chaldeans would get what's coming to them eventually in his own time. His just judgment was sure to come. And even though he was raising them up to accomplish his own purposes in this world, that did not excuse their evil deeds or mean that God winks at sin. And the same holds true today. God does not change. Amen. If God changed, we would be, we would be destroyed. We would be, we would be consumed. And so the final, the third chapter of Habakkuk, he once again prays to God. This time he's changed. He's gone from complaining multiple times to praising God for his splendor, for his power, for his acts of great judgment and deliverance in the past, verses 5 through 15. And now what he, what he resigned himself to do was to quietly, quote-unquote, verse 16, quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. In other words, 
He was trusting that God could be trusted to do what he said. That God said he will take care of the Babylonians in his own time. And he said he was going to wait for God to do just that. In other words, he was living by what? Living by faith. Living by faith. Trusting in his God. How great was Habakkuk's faith? He was about to see some very awful things in in just a number of of years, we think. But the final verses of the entire book, and we'll get back to chapter 2, verse 4 in a minute. The final verses of the book paint quite a picture of childlike trust and faith. Habakkuk 3, verses 17 to 19, here's his prayer and confession of his faith in God. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. It almost sounds like Job. Everything is gone. There's no prosperity here going on. But what does he say? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet Like the deers, he makes me tread on high places. It's a picture of victory. He's trusting in God that, that, you know, not using the same words that Paul used in Romans 8, but he's basically confessing that he knows in the Lord he's he's more than a conqueror through Christ who loved him. It's the same confession of faith he's making there in chapter 3. Well, getting to the gospel according to Habakkuk, which is what we find in chapter 2, verse 4, when you take this whole book, Uh, in general and see the themes that are written in it and see what God is doing and has done and what God promised. Is it any wonder the Apostle Paul sees in this one verse, Habakkuk 2.4, proof of the gospel of Christ and proof of justification by faith? He quotes it twice in his epistles, and we're going to look at each one of those quotes briefly. And and he quotes it twice in Romans Romans and uh, Galatians. And why does he do that? He quotes it in order to establish and teach these very things, justification by faith alone. Romans 1, 16 and 17, this is what Paul says. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why? For in it, verse 17, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And here it is. As it is written, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. When he says, just as it is written, what's he saying? He's saying, what I'm saying here, this is Paul, is what Habakkuk said back there. I'm teaching you what he said. What Paul was teaching about the gospel was not some new invention out of whole cloth. He's saying, you know that book in the Minor Prophets, the book of Habakkuk? It's right there that the just shall live by his faith. That's what he means when he says, as it is written. He's saying that his quotation from Habakkuk proves the very point he's making in Romans about the gospel, that the gospel of Christ is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Jew and also Greek. Why? Because in it, the righteousness of God, in other words, the righteousness that comes from God, is revealed from faith to faith, or as the NIV puts it, from faith, sorry, by faith from first to last. From beginning to end, we are saved by faith. Paul quotes it also, this verse in, in um, oh, concerning the, the quote of it, Calvin writes this, 
we should quote a, a reformer on this day, right? Uh, he proves the, the righteousness of God, uh, the righteousness of faith, that is, that comes by faith, by the authority of the prophet Habakkuk, who in preceding the destruction of the proud, adds at the same time that the just shall live by his faith. How can a sinner, which is what we all are, how can a sinner be counted just or righteous in the sight of a holy God? That's the question, isn't it? That's what justification by faith is really about. How can a sinner be counted righteous in God's sight who sees all? You know, uh, even the most proud and delusional among us, you know, we all know if we're honest, we have thought things, certainly, we have said things, and we have all done things that we would be ashamed and embarrassed for our friends and family to know. Things in your past, things like that, you go, oh, let's not make that public. You know, if we're going to make my biography, leave a bunch of this stuff out, right? We all know that's the case. Well, what, what, how much greater is God? God sees all of it. He remembers every last bit of it. So how can we possibly think we can be justified before a holy God by what we do? How can we ever hope to be righteous before a holy God? Well, Paul also quotes this text in Galatians 3, 10 to 11, and he says this. He says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Why? For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In other words, if you want to be justified by works, by, by obeying God's law, well, you better obey all of it. The book of James says, whoever does everything, I'm paraphrasing, uh, but sins in one thing has, is guilty of all. One sin against God's, God's law is it breaks the whole law. There's no, on the judgment day, well, God, I kept nine of the ten, which we never did. But I've kept all these, but eh, not that one, not in any way. He says, everyone uh, who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them is under a curse. And he says, here it is, verse 11 of Galatians 3. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. No one. And, and why is it? He says, for, what does it say in Habakkuk 2? For the righteous shall live by faith. No one justified before God by the law because the righteous, those who are justified before God, shall live by faith. The just or justified person does not rely on his own works because no one is justified before a holy God that way. The justified person is the person who lives by faith, trusting in the promise of God and the gospel of Christ, where the righteousness from God is revealed unto our salvation. Christ's perfect righteousness put to our account and received by faith alone. That's justification. God's standard is perfection. None of us can reach, ever even come close to reaching that perfection. And so what does God do? He provides that righteousness to us, which is not our own at all. It's that which comes through faith because it's Christ's righteousness put to our account by faith. And not just that, the person, the just person, the righteous person, isn't just saved by faith at the beginning, as important as that is. The righteous person, as, as, as Habakkuk says, lives by his faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. Faith in Christ is not just something for the very beginning of the Christian life. The entirety of the Christian life in this life is lived by faith from beginning to end. Paul says something similar in 2 Corinthians 5, 7. He says, we walk by faith, not by sight. 
Walking is another way of saying living. You could easily, you know, wouldn't translate it this way, but you could easily paraphrase it saying, we live by faith, not by sight. Your whole life is a walking by faith in the promises of God, not by what you see. No wonder this great doctrine of justification by faith alone was at the heart of the Reformation and is considered the doctrine by which the church stands or falls because it involves the salvation of sinners like us, that we don't stand by the works of the law, we don't stand by anything we do, as we've sung a few times this morning, this morning in the service, not what my hands have done, only the cross of Christ and his righteousness put to us by faith alone will stand before God. Amen.